Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. YouTube DL is back on GitHub. GitHub has started a legal defense fund. Plasma Mobile is now available on the Pine Phone. It's an exciting week in open source. Excited to get to all of it. But first, we start with feedback. Our first email comes in from Darren. He says, hi, Noah. You discuss various times about how you've set up thin links with Raspberry Pi thin clients and forward USB peripherals. I'm assuming that thin links uses free RDP. I've been trying to forward various USB devices and I can get them to show up in the device manager, but they aren't usable. About a month ago, you said the only thing that you had trouble forwarding is CD burning, which sounds very impressive. You've had no other obstacles. Can you please share how this works for you? I wouldn't say we wouldn't have, we didn't have any other obstacles. That was the only hard barrier we found that there was absolutely no way um, to get around it. So with ThinLink specifically, what we had to do to get some of the USB uh, peripherals to work is uh, our developer actually uh, went in and, and made some changes. Now we contacted them and said, here's what we did to get these things to work. And they said, yeah, that's great. We'll get to it at some point. Um, and we were kind of disappointed with that answer, but it is possible to get better performance. Uh, basically, you just need a newer version of FreeRDP uh, in ThinLinks. That's the, and and so um, so that that's one way to get a, to to go about it. The burning breaks primarily because the way that all thin clients or most RDP thin clients reference connected storage devices is they create an artificial uh, Samba share, uh, artificial window share, basically, and it maps it almost like a network drive. Um, and that's how a user is able to access files. And so it works fine for reading, but obviously CD burning software has no concept of writing data. And so you need it to show up as a block level device. And so that takes you down the route to iSCSI. And um, so you can get there, but it, it, it burning disks reliably uh, on, on a Windows client hasn't, we have not been real successful uh, with that. That said, I, I want to point, I, I use this email because I want to point something out here. There, certain clients have had to use RDP client, just the regular Windows RDP client to get to it. And the, the real value here is not necessarily in Windows running on the metal of the thing that the user interacts with. That's not what's important. What really is important is Linux running at the place that it matters. Um, and that's on the hypervisor because now we have access to snapshots and, and, and rolling those things back. And we have access to the stability and security of Linux. How the end user wants to access what is essentially a service, even if it's a service that they own and host in their own environment, it's still a service. How the user wants to access that is entirely up to them. And we have users that access it on an iPad. We have users that access it on an Android phone. We have users that access it on Linux. We have users that access it from a Raspberry Pi running thin links. And we have users that, that access it right from Windows with an RDP shortcut. So I don't get, I really don't get too involved in how they want to, again, access those services. I'm more concerned about the back-end infrastructure because that's what we are tasked with maintaining and making sure it works. The other thing is, if you look at it just from the standpoint of how long does it take to rebuild any particular thing, 
how long does it take to fix any particular product or, or particular problem? Um, if you have a user that, that hoses their end device, it's pretty easy to get an RDP endpoint back up and running. It's much more difficult to do that um, when you have, if you have to reconfigure the entire Windows workstation. And so that's where I think you save a little bit of time. Um, and where Linux is the most functionally valuable to you is not necessarily on the, on, on the, on the thin client endpoint, but on, on the backend infrastructure. But we've used all three and they all work. So if, you, if you're having trouble, um, consider that. Uh, our second email comes in from David. David writes in and says, Hi Noah, first off, I enjoyed the last show as usual. I was intrigued by the segment on the last show about pagers, largely because my organization uses text-based pagers and I hadn't heard of anyone else using them. The pagers we use are made by a brand called Unication, similar to this one here, and he links to the Alpha Legend Secure. He says there are two basic ways to send a message to the pager, through their internal web page, where you can select a pager and type a short message, or you can dial through a phone and call this number and press a key to specify a different message, so on and so forth. I've been playing for a while with this system, and it has several issues. First, the actual pagers are pricey, probably because they're, specific, they're a specialty item. Also, because it's legacy technology, it's conceivable that the company will eventually go under at some point and will be stuck buying old units off of eBay. You've mentioned it in the last show, and I'm already trying to imagine what a matrix-based solution would look like. Ideally, it would be a solution that didn't involve everyone having to have a smartphone. As many people in the organization don't have one, it would also mean providing them with a company phone. Of course, in the ham community, I immediately thought about some sort of packet based over matrix over RF, but that's something I'm fairly sure doesn't exist. Ideally, the solution would allow for dumb receivers, perhaps in addition to the app. Uh, so people who don't have a phone could carry both a phone and a pager, and currently the case, and in addition, wouldn't need to work. It wouldn't work where there is no Wi-Fi. Either a cell service, preferably RF, because that's free. Obviously, it would have to have something like this, perhaps using an Arduino or other SVC. But from a small business angle, it would definitely be better if there was a product that filled those needs. Not necessarily trying to get any answers, but just interested on your thoughts. And you know, again, what is exciting to me about Matrix is the very fact that these are the people. That are, that are building the tools that make it possible for all of these things to exist. And there are people that are building, the, the, as fast as people can imagine ways to implement this, you can do it. So first of all, Matrix doesn't require any authentication, right? And so one of the first things that we were able to experiment with is that anything can really be a thing that sends a Matrix message. And that's super useful and super powerful. If every server can have a tiny little Python script, and when that Python script is run, that server chirps for whatever reason. That's a very powerful place to start. Um, additionally, we do have a license, that, that, uh, a business license that gives us 150 megahertz at ultra speed. And so we've played with, our, we have a small little VHF repeater that we use for like on-site coordinating text to clients, that kind of thing. Um, but the, it would be trivial to tie the voice portion of that to Matrix, but you're right. There's no elegant way that I know of to tie the text-based portion of it. Additionally, I also question what the larger uh, you know uh, desire is for this for me it's a function of being able to differentiate the personal device that i have and and business needs that we expect from employees because i think particularly at a time where companies are requiring people to work from home those lines need to be more firm than ever um and in 2021 
organizations are going to be expected to work remotely. And so, you know, at UltaSpeed, we're figuring that out internally. What does that look like if everybody is remote all the time? And how do we still get a hold of people without having to expect them to install our software on their property? Because this is what we think is a responsible way to manage technology. And so we figure out how to apply some of those standards in a remote world. We keep landing back on matrix it, because couple things are given, right? We're going to standardize whatever it is. The world is going to standardize on something IP. And so right now we're having that discussion and Zoom comes up a lot and Teams comes up a lot and Slack comes up a lot and Rocket Chat comes up a lot. And Mattermost comes up a lot. Um, Discord comes up a lot. But the, the reality is I keep looking and I, I, I keep trying to justify it and I, I just can't quite get there. And, and so we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on throughout the show. Um, we have an update from... The, the matrix team and, and what they're doing with dendrite. And so uh, I'll, I'll, we'll get into that a, a little bit, but right now where we're at internally is we can get the matrix client to a device that has an IP address. That's easy. But how does that device stay on the internet? If it's tethered to the phone, well, it doesn't really make it better than having an independent device. Does it? And if you pair it with an LTE modem, um, then you're paying for a subscription service for every one of those devices, which I guess is better than a phone. But at that point, why wouldn't you just buy a phone and install the app on it? Um, and so, yeah, if we, we've, that's the part that we're hung up on and we're not sure how much further to push it. But um, our next stage is we're testing with the, the Pine Watches and we're going to see what those are capable of doing. But I like your thoughts and uh, I'm glad I'm not the only one thinking that that communication architecture might be uh, a really powerful way to provide better service to customers. Third email comes in from Brendan. He writes in and says, Hi Noah, I eagerly listen to your podcast. I live in Europe and I was interested in episode 156 covering, amongst other things, IP cameras and NVRs. My question is this, how did you opt for the DS718 Plus instead of a dedicated NVR? Thank you for your excellent show and for allowing people like me not to feel, feel completely lost in today's tech world. All the best, Brendan. So, you have a couple of choices when you want to sit down and, and, and put a bunch of cameras onto an NVR. First thing that always comes up is ZoneMinder. And I still get people today that say, you know, have you thought and considered ZoneMinder? Yes, I have. Um, the other one that runs on Linux is BlueCherry DVR. You can learn more at BlueCherryDVR.com, ZoneMinder.com for ZoneMinder. And both of those work. And in a home use environment or a very basic business use environment, it's especially with trained staff or with, with, you know, with dedicated people that kind of can be trained, that's not a bad idea and not, not a bad way to go. Um, but I, their user interface is just very difficult when you're trying to compete with users that are, that are used to things like Dropcam and Nestcam. And so when you have a guy and his job is to sit in front of this screen or in front of this computer and all day long, he has to watch these cameras and interface with them and keep an eye on product and stuff like that. His experience and, and how he feels when he's operating uh, that device has to be approachable. And so there's a couple of options that we've used. Um, the first is if you're looking for a software solution, there's a company called exact vision E X A C Q. Um, I've talked about them once or twice before on the air and what exact vision is, is uh an, a high-end NVR solution, the kind of NVR software solution, not open source at all, by the way, is proprietary solution, but the kind of thing that you would expect to see if you went into like a Vegas hotel. Uh, and they run on Linux. They obviously run on, on Windows and Mac as well, but they have software that runs right on Linux. And so you can go that route and you'll have a fantastic experience. 
great mobile app, and it will all work. Now, it's not going to be open source, um, but you can build it to whatever scale you need it to be. And that's kind of the, where that solution fits in. The big thing I don't like is their licensing model. And the licensing model works like this. You buy the license for you know 300 bucks a camera or whatever it is. It's not cheap. And then there's a maintenance fee every year that you have to pay on the license. But it gets worse. If you don't pay for the license after the first year, you don't renew. And then maybe the second year you don't renew. And then maybe the third year you don't renew. And then the fourth year you don't renew. And then you decide... I had, you know, whatever, 12 cameras when I started, but now I want to add another four. And you call them up and say, I want to buy another four camera license to get to 16. Well, guess what? They make you back pay the maintenance agreement on the eight cameras, your 12 cameras, whatever you did have for the past however many, four years. That's not cool. That feels like I'm renting a solution. So, and again, the reason that they kind of scrape by the, the, the sand line is, at the end of the day, as long as you never added any cameras, it would at least what you have wouldn't stop working. So if you if you're comparing it to the bar of analog cameras, in where I bought a 16 channel DVR and at least you'll have a 16 channel DVR indefinitely, I guess that would be true with Exact Vision. Um, but they don't they're not high on my list because of that, and so that leaves you with either. Uh, Really, that leaves you with two solutions. That leaves you with GeoVision, which has a Linux-based NVR solution, but really, it looks kind of like a cheap Chinese-made piece of junk. And then there's Synology. And Synology is really designed as a NAS solution. But honestly, I've never used them as a NAS solution because if I was going to trust my data on something, I'd rather have it on ZFS. And so I'd rather have FreeNAS. But Synology has what they call the DSM. And DSM is their disk station manager. It's the software, runs on Linux, that runs on... Uh, the Synology disk station itself. And DSM is super easy to install because you just plug the drive into the back front of the Synology and turn it on, and it will download and install the latest version of DSM. And then you just access it through a web browser, and I'm telling you, the interface inside of Synology looks almost like a little mini operating system. And then you install the package Surveillance Station, and Surveillance Station transforms the Synology disk station into the best NVR I've ever used. It's on par with uh, with Unify. It doesn't scale to the the level of something like Exact Vision, um, but it's not designed to. For that business that wants to have cameras in every room, or the guy who wants to have cameras all over over his or her house, um, what you want is a very reliable device that's easy to add cameras to and has a decent mobile interface. And their mobile app is great. And uh, when we do installs, we try to we try to modularize if that's a word to uh, the entire process. And so we typically use access cameras because they offer the best quality and security for a price, but people that aren't willing to pay that we have gone with the who and GeoVision. Um, but what you, what, what changes in that model is where you're drawing the line between security and risk and what you want out of that, those cameras, ease of use and those kinds of things. And so uh, we, we try to, we try to section off the cameras and say, well, if you're looking for a particular resolution, you're trying to capture this, that, or the other, here's the cameras that you're going to use. And every camera in that category will work with all of the NVRs I just mentioned because they all work on open standards. And so that's kind of the beauty here in that you can jump from one solution to another and start with something like ZoneMinder and then upgrade to something like the Synology or then upgrade to something like Exact Vision, you don't, or Blue Cherry. You're not stuck with one thing or the other. But I have gone with with uh, the Synology be 
partly because of their licensing model. Once you buy the camera license, they are yours for life. And yes, you need the internet to activate the cam the license module the first time, but then there's no fee after that. You can keep updating the box. You can keep getting the latest version of surveillance stations. You own it for that many cameras. If you ever want to transfer the camera licenses, they'll let you do that. They'll let you remove them from one box and transfer them to the other. So if the box physically dies, you're not out all of that, that camera license money. So the only real gripe I have, like the only practical gripe I have, is you still have to order the camera licenses last like physical copies. That drives me absolutely nuts because you have to wait for them in the mail. But that's why that's how I came to the conclusion of 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 using surveillance station on on the Synology. It's because when you compare it to everything that's out there, even though it's actually sold as a NAS solution, the truth is it's the best self hosted surveillance solution out there. And Synology, if you go just to their website and look at how far up that scales, we're we're right now looking at it to, to use with, with up to 72 cameras. So they they have thought about this and, and really just put a solid product out there and it just happens to fit in a variety of circumstances. So I say more power to them. Again, 1-855-450, no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at Show. Dot com. That's how you make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Our pick of the week this week is the Makers for Life ventilator. This is the first open source ventilator tested with success on human patients after ongoing clinical trials in France. So the story here goes that, you know, post-COVID-19, they uh, figured out, hey, we're going to need more ventilators than we, origin than we have. Um, we got hit with this initial wave. What are we going to do? And so they got to work. And they built a pump and they built a valve system controlled by electronics. And the way that the breathing cycle works requires a, a very specific air routing system with a bunch of valves. And so they, their ventilator is able to handle this pressure controlled breathing using the, the PID of a controller in their software. And then in order to establish the right cycles, they have a lot of valves that are all connected together to form this closed circuit. And their motors are controlled uh, in perfect harmony so that all of the air routing around each valve is perfectly consistent. And so they, all of this, all, all of these parts uh, were good enough to be produced, to be mass produced. And they provide all of the mechanical parts and they provide all of the designs and the, and the firmwares and the ventilator can even be 3D printed. And um, you can run it on something like an Arduino board. But I think what's really cool here is the way that this is being translated into practical things that can be used. Yes, it is possible to print something on a 3D printer at your house, but they go on to explain why you shouldn't do that and why that's not safe uh, for use in human patients. But they don't they, they stop short of saying that this isn't something that could be widely or should be widely produced. Um, in fact, they encourage, and that's what they're working towards. And so what they've what they've laid out is here is here is the thing that we've actually tested, and here's the way that we've built it where it's actually passed all of these tests and is being used in clinical studies. And so if you can afford it to do it this way, here's the way that you should do it. But here is the 3D mock-ups of and here are all the design diagrams. So if you want to go home and try and do this yourself, uh, then you are 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 able to do that. And and again, it's not about like, oh, well, now there's an open source ventilator, so it'll put ventilator companies out of business. Of course not. Like, that's not what this is about. The point is to expand the reach of technology and expand the ability for technology to help people when they're in need. And what you, what you, what you started with is a disease that started to overwhelm uh, the healthcare industry. And one of the things that they badly need is a tool. 
And one of the things that the open source community is able to provide, they look at it and say, hey, what you're asking for from a mechanical engineering standpoint is not that technically complicated of a thing to do. And all of the little pieces of software that you would need, things like firmware to control this and little controller boards and all that, we have all of those things. They already are in existence. And so we can take all this code and we can put it up here in a central place. And then we can go through with people that actually understand how to manufacture things and build things. And you go and look on their GitHub page, which we'll have linked in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Look at the actual picture of this thing. It's fantastic. It looks beautiful. Again, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email is live at asknoahshow.com. They, uh, I, I really believe this company is, is, this is what open source does well. This company is paving the way to, to removing obstacles for, for patients in healthcare. I think it's fantastic. Uh, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. Jeffrey, Grand Forks, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, Noah, good to talk to you again. Say, I am looking for some uh, teleconference hardware. Uh, we recently had some job, and uh, the gentleman who was doing it also set up for uh, remote users to remote in and, and view the training, and he was using a, uh, oh, uh, a Blue Yeti microphone uh, as the audio source or the, the microphone. And uh, I was looking around, and, and they're a little spendy. I was wondering if you knew of any other decent hardware, you know, a little less steep price. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got a. There's a number of options. So, kind of my go-to when I'm looking for something that's like jaw-droppingly inexpensive and um, and works really, really well uh, is. Let's see if I can grab it, pull it real here, here real quick. It is the. Audio Technica AT2020, I believe, is the model number. And um, what I like about it is uh, it is a USB-based microphone. Well, actually, I guess that's up there a little bit in price, too. Um, do you have a price range in specific you're looking to stay under? Not really. This was kind of a, all off of a whim, so I, I haven't really done a lot of research yet, so I don't know what's out there. Well, here's what I can tell you in general. What you're going to want to look for is a condenser microphone. There are oftentimes that you're going to get much, uh, you're going to get a much better sound for 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 a fraction of the price. Um, and the only downside to a condenser mic is they are going to pick up noise more. And so if you the 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 quieter of a room you're in, the the better luck you're going to have. But a lot of times when you when when you have people that are having trouble hearing, oftentimes if you get a more sensitive mic, a lot of the most noticeable problems. Um, go away, and you can buy a good condenser microphone, USB condenser microphone, um, for like thirty-five bucks. Um, so I'll have a link for you for a, a USB microphone that worked natively on Linux and would have, you know, obviously drivers for Mac and Windows too if you just plug them in. Um, but yeah, for, on Amazon for thirty-five bucks, and that's that would be my next step to uh, to getting better sound and, and, and audio. And then as far as a camera, um, if you know if you're happy with the built-in one, you can do that. Otherwise, a C920 or C930, whatever the next one in the series, they're a little hard to come by right now, but that's certainly the best out there. Yeah, and what if? You know, I'm, I'm looking for something because we're going to have. We're gonna, my intent was to run a a laptop, and then just do the audio uh, for the conference. Um, are those condenser mics going to uh, with the the laptop speakers? Is that going to create some sort of echo? Um, well, let me ask you this: Do you have a PA for your conference? Like, is there is there anybody doing sound for your conference? 
No, it's what we're what I'm looking to do is is um, for a local club in town. We are having trouble getting people together because of this whole COVID. Oh, I see. And for a way to kind of join people together on an audio call. Sure, so we sure. Can actually, proceed with our meetings. Sure. So the if you're lo- if, so there's so there's a couple different. I'll give you a couple different options. Then so the one one thing I'll tell you is that there is a device made by Anchor. Um, and it is a Bluetooth, actually, uh, speakerphone that is designed for conferences. Um, it's called the PowerConf, and, 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 and it's, it's up there. It's in the $100 area, but the, it has six microphones, and essentially they're all omnidirectional, um, and they're placed around um, the device so that if you have a bunch of people that are all sitting around a table, it's going to pick them all up equally. Um, and so if you're looking for a nice, easy, compact, uh, portable solution to, to increase, that's one option for you. Like I said, the the, the uh, USB condenser mics would be a second option, although that's going to be tailored more towards uh, you know broadcasting or recording, not so much conferencing. And the third option you have is you could get something like an audio interface and then you could plug something like a boundary microphone into it. Uh, and that would allow you to swap out the source of audio. So, for example, if you're all crowded around a table, then you could use something like a boundary mic. And if you were all spread out and uh, you could each have a, a separate microphone and you could kind of expand a little bit that way. As far as your echo question, you're kind of going to rely on the on the conferencing software um, to cut a lot of that out. And so software like Zoom is going to be designed to do that. But obviously, um, you're right. Best practice is always going to be to have if every individual conference participant had separate headphones and a separate microphone. In a perfect world, that's what you would have. Um, but that just may not be possible. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? All right, perfect. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. one 450 no it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at Ask Noah Show. Dot com. And by the way, I wouldn't rule out the Yeti Snowball either. I mean, those are not bad microphones or the, or the, the, uh, the Blue Yeti. All of those, uh, all of the Yeti products are sound really, really good. They're just up there in price. Hey, KDE has an announcement this week. PinePhone is teaming up with Plasma Mobile. The PinePhone KDE Community Edition includes most of the essential features that a smartphone user would expect, and its functionalities increase day by day. You can follow the progress of the development of apps, and features in the Plasma Mobile blog. Now, Plasma Mobile is a direct descendant from the KDE's successful Plasma desktop. The same underlying technologies drive both environments, and apps like KDE Connect let you connect the phone and desktop to the Ocular Document Reader, VWave Music Player, and others. Availables are up, are available on both the desktop and mobile. So, of course, like all mobile operating systems these days, they are eventually skating towards the idea of convergence here. So the idea that you would eventually plug in your Type-C dock and have all of the things that you'd have on, on the desktop. But I think what's more exciting, at least today, if KDE has the potential to deliver to me a the same or similar experience that we've had on desktops in terms of polish and control, then, quite frankly, they are going to be successful in mobile. The, the mobile space is becoming increasingly more competitive. And I think part of the reason that it's becoming more competitive is because there are more players in the game. And so the bar is, not, it's not necessarily a linear bar. There are, there are some players that, that are doing better in privacy and some players that are doing better in, in security and, and, and so on and so forth. And so I, I think that helps because there's a lot of different things to consider. But in large part, it's thanks to 
hardware providers like Pine that are making it easier than ever to swap operating systems out. I don't I just don't have time in my in my week to research whatever the latest way is to first root my existing Android phone, then go figure out where I download whatever the operating system is, then load it. Then if it didn't work with my particular model because it didn't have the, the, the drivers to be able to talk to the radios, then I have to go sop, sub that out or swap that out. Then sometimes there's a workaround for screens or Wi-Fi or whatever it is. And finally, if you get through all of that and your phone doesn't brick, then you can try out that operating system. And then your experience starts. Right. I just got through that whole project and then I can start seeing what I even think of the operating system before I design before I desire to even continue to use it. And that's totally overlooking, by the way, things like e-fuses that were in the Amazon Fire Stick. So doing this for a long time has been a real pain in the tuckus to, to be able to experiment or play with this. And because it's expensive and because it carries the risk of breaking a device, it's understandable that people to include myself, don't really want to do this with expensive phones. And so when I get my latest $800 phone or $900 phone or whatever it is and something that's so expensive I can't even change the battery in, the last thing I really think about doing is gaining administrative access to my own device so I can play with it and install my own software on it because that in this day and age is enough to, to, to irreparably damage my phone. And that really sucks. So where I get excited with the Pine phone and where I get excited with Plasma Mobile is this allows me to experiment with my phone the same way that I've experimented with computers in the same way that I've experimented with ham radio and the same way I experiment with other technology because at the end of the day, I want to play with it. I want to take it apart. I want to put it back together. I want to see what I can do with it. I want to know how it works. And the Pine phone answers those questions. KDE Mobile answers those questions. Android doesn't answer those questions. Apple doesn't answer those questions. And those devices working together and those projects being able to work together and the fact that you have a Pine phone, a single, P, a single device that can be married to a number of different software solutions. And it doesn't matter which one it is. Makers of Pine phone are going to work with KDE Plasma Mobile. Makers of Pine phone are going to work with Postmarket OS. The makers of Ubuntu Touch are going to work with Pine phone. The makers of Sailfish OS are going to work with Pine phone. All you, you get a true competition of an open source ecosystem. And because of the hard work and because of the openness that occurs here, installing an operating system on the Pine phone is as simple as flashing an image onto an SD card. Then you plug the SD card in and now your phone is that thing. And that's, that is the, the progress that they've made in such short time is absolutely fantastic. I promise you, I, I don't think I would be as excited about Plasma Mobile if I didn't have a device that I could just go home and try it on and play with it for the next week and see what I like about it and what I don't like about it. The time and the ease of use and the privacy aspect and the security aspect and the money aspect of it, like you can buy a phone for $200 and you can actually use it for something and it's useful and you can actually own it. And I, you know, there is a camera company that we were evaluating for use and it, they ended up being completely cloud-based. Like they, they will not sell you a camera that you can just install. And it's built here in the United States and the company is owned here in the United States. And if that guy would just sell me his camera, and I said this as soon as I saw, we took pictures of, it, I said, this is the best design camera I think I've ever seen in my life. The engineering that has gone into this is absolutely fantastic. The, the, the thought that this guy put in to this camera is one of the best IP cameras I've ever seen. And if that guy would just sell his camera or be willing to put 
open source firmware on his camera, we wouldn't sell anything else. And I'd be talking about it here tonight. But the thing is, it would fundamentally destroy his business model because he operates a cloud-based company. And so that's just not going to work. And, and, and that, that's why we keep running against brick walls because we keep co- going to companies like Samsung. We keep going to companies like Apple. We keep asking them to produce a device for us thing that we can own and play with and have fun with and do the things that we want to do with. And those companies keep coming back and saying, you don't write big enough checks and you don't have the right agreements in place for those software. And so we don't, that, that is just not going to happen. But transparency is necessary. If you want to get talented software projects paired with with talented hardware projects. And so when I see this unfolding and I I go one week and we announced that Pine Pine is Pine has partnered with Postmarket OS. Isn't that fantastic? Pine is par- partnered with Manjaro, isn't that? And Pine has partnered. You can't stop. They keep partnering with new and exciting options, different ways that you can experience mobile. And I, I didn't agree with all of what he said, but there was a there was a there was a a news site that, that had an opinion piece on it, and I, and I clipped a piece of his article. If you want to go read the rest of it, it's, 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 uh, it's linked to podcast.asknoahshow.com. But he says, quote, on the other hand, this is the phone that you would buy if you wanted to try out one of the several fledging free and open source mobile systems. The Pine phone provides you with all the tools that you need to try out each and every one of them in an afternoon, making booting and flashing child's play. It may encourage you to help build a future of mobile, be it with code, design ideas, or just bug reports. It's a phone that fosters grassroots, community-driven contributions. Once a couple things get working reliably in Plasma Mobile, it'll also be the phone that you would buy if you wanted to protect your privacy. If all the software is free and open and can be audited in depth, and you don't want to worry about saying or leaking proprietary software, this is the phone for you. Plus, it comes with physical hardware kill switches that allow you to turn off the Wi-Fi microphone cameras, etc. This is my phone. This is what I'm looking for. This is the experience I'm looking for. This is what I want. And I don't want it to replace my phone. My phone is a very good tool and, and they're just, they're things that I need it for to be able to communicate with banking apps and so on and so forth. And I don't want this device to replace that thing. But I don't like being beholden to any particular piece of technology. And the fact that there are companies out there that are doing this and software, software developers out there that are that 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 develop this stuff and you can pair the two together or now just go to a site and pay two hundred dollars and have that experience shipped to you, that is incredibly powerful. So I highly encourage you to take up uh that opportunity. Also, there is an update in Matrix. So uh quick recap for those of you who haven't been following uh the Matrix journey, as it were. Protocol is Matrix, the server is Synapse, and Element is the client. And yes, there are lots of other clients and servers, but Cinnamon or Cinnamon Synapse and Element are the two that are most prevalent. So Synapse was originally built to showcase what the Matrix could protocol could do. So they needed a server to be able to say, look what this thing can do, and that is Synapse. Dendrite is what will hopefully eventually replace Synapse, at least for large scale. And that's built to be a scalable, reliable, efficient matrix server. And so if you want to host something small inside of your house, you would do it on something like Synapse. And if you want to go roll out uh, a communications platform for 10,000 users, then you use you would use something like Dendrite. Well, Dendrite 0.3 has been released, and they have a couple of new exciting features. Forgetting Rooms is now supported, and read receipts, both inbound and outbound, are supported. They're not quite at feature parity yet with... Um, with Synapse, but this is, I, I, we're kind of watching uh, an open source project 
unfold in real time because right now is about the best time in history for everybody to start choosing a platform to be on to work and communicate remotely. Somebody was going to make that decision. 2020 is probably the year that happened. And if it doesn't happen in 2020, it'll definitely happen in 2021. And for a long time, I have been sick and tired of jumping from one platform to another. But I've also yet to find a FOSS solution that I really thought fit all of the particular use cases until I found Matrix. And with FOSS, you never really know if it works for you. You know that there are people that like it and the people that like it obviously speak very highly of it. And then they're the people that use the other thing. And so they talk about that. And so until you actually get to use it yourself, you don't really know. And then Matrix presented itself during self and however imperfect it, it got the job done. And then it kind of grew on us. And then the community built on it. And then we start looking at Slack and okay, fine. It runs on Linux. And for just a moment, we'll ignore the software licenses and all of that that goes with it and all of the privacy aspect that goes around with it. And we start looking at it and find out that you can't mute users. And then we go and find that there is a Twitter post that a bunch of people have then jumped on that basically said, hey, you can't mute users and this is a problem. There's a problem with your software. I can't do this thing that I want to do. And Slack's answer was, we're not going to fix that. We don't think you should do that thing. Okay, well, now what can we do? We can't do anything. And so we don't know what features are coming. We have to just trust what their vision is. When we don't agree with what their vision is or we don't like the decisions they make, we don't get to say anything about it. We can't even have a discussion. And to be fair, one of their UI developers has been very public about what his plans and and and, and kind of his direction for the, the UI and where they were going. And that was interesting to read. Um, but for the most part, everything's done behind closed doors. And so here we are, a few months ago, we stumble into the Matrix community, and we find all sorts of cool people doing all sorts of cool things that nobody's talking about, and I don't understand. There's a guy that runs a service called T2Bot.io. Saw a guy in Matrix the other day, and he goes, how do I, I always hear about how easy it is to bridge uh, Matrix to all these things. How do I bridge it to Slack? And I'm thinking to myself, we have a, new, a bunch of clients that are on Slack, and we bridge all the time. We use this guy's service. And there, people are giving instructions. Well, here's how you'd self-host this. And I thought, oh, he wants to self-host it. That's fine. But how great is it that there's a public service uh, operated by just a dude in the Matrix community that's like, hey, it's really great to be able to bridge things. I'll make it really easy for you to bridge any two things together. Uh, they're exceptionally open about their development. If you have an issue, you raise it on GitHub. They'll address it. And if they're a bigger fish to fry, they'll tell you that. And then if you want to hire a dev and you want to fix something in specific, go for it. And they 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 have language that encourages people to get in, in touch with them if you want to make a contribution to get a particular problem solved or get something done. Their hosting is less money by like a third of what Slack is. And for our medical clients, they offer encryption right out of the out of the out of the gate. And if you don't like their implementation of Matrix, build your own. And indeed, there are plenty of people that have. And you know what the reaction from the Matrix community has been? They celebrate it. They promote it. They share it all over the place and go, hey, if you don't like the way that we've implemented Matrix, here's the way this guy did it or this group did it. And I, I was having a conversation with the user and he said, man, I just got my whole family on Signal or Telegram or whatever it was. And I said, yeah, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to do that because my kids didn't have cell phone numbers. And a lot of those messaging services require a cell phone number, but I could spin up a Synapse server and my kids were sitting and learning on the same technology infrastructure, the same thing that they're creating rooms and locking each other out of and changing the titles and, and, and posting silly pictures and doing all of the things that kids do to play with, with one another. What they don't understand yet 
is that those same the, that same skill set and those same tools and those same rooms that they're playing with today can be used for productivity, can be used for work, can be used for volunteering, can be used for secure communication, can be used for community building. And that's what open source does well. And that's what Matrix is doing well. And that's what EMS, the paid version of, of Matrix, you just want to pay and then use it. That's what they're doing well. They're building communities and they're, they're allowing people to leverage open source technology on their own terms. And so I'm incredibly thankful to Matt uh, and, and, the, and Matthew and the rest of the team over at Matrix. So I uh, tune in each week to listen uh, to Matrix Live, which is another way that they stay very open and, and transparent with what they're doing. And if you're not into the, the the technology thing that is Matrix, then maybe some of it isn't so interesting to you. But what's coming around the corner is interesting because it is what we're seeing is this pattern of open source being built in small little tools and then all of a sudden it comes together in a big way and and then just totally dominates and that's kind of what you saw with youtube uh with 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 software like youtube dl certainly with software like ffmpeg they they just become staples and i and i think what you're seeing is as all of these communication platforms start to compete what you're seeing is matrix had the roots started for all of these things so now they're at a point where they say, oh, this is what users want. Watch how fast we can roll that out and do it 10 times better than everybody else. And so what's coming up very quickly on their list, they've started to divide their teams out and start to have people like what they call their delight team, which focuses on making the UI the best experience that it can be. Uh, and, and, and one of the first things that they're working on, or one of the next things that they're working on is spaces or communities. And this is essentially it's room filters is really what it is. It's an ability to limit what rooms a user is seeing. And uh, Matthew explains this much better than, than I can. So uh, I just took a clip uh, from, uh, from uh, Matrix Live and uh, we'll air that here. It is looking pretty good. It allows you to create a hierarchy of rooms. So we have spaces within spaces or subspaces, if you will. And we have design. And you know, in practice, the folks working on this is Nad as the designer, Rich and VDH as the Synapse and Spec Hacker, me as the guy who originally wrote the half-hour spec um, proposal for it. And shortly, we'll then be pulling in the um, folks actually building it on web and Android and iOS. We're thinking, not that we told anybody yet that we might do it on mobile first and have Valer on Android have a stab at it rather than doing it first on web so that would be interesting to see um, how that pans out watch your space um, and it's really exciting we're going to allow group operations for permissions at last so you can say hey this room is allowed to be joined by anybody from this space which is such a common obvious thing that we should support and we haven't historically and there's also, oh, yes, all of the ops in this room, all the moderators um, in this room should be from this space. So you just define these kind of access controls and can apply them on mass around the place, which we have been frantically wanting forever. So people start and they say to themselves, well, I, I went in, I, I checked out Element and it was pretty cool. But, you know, Discord had this particular function or this particular feature. And one of the things, obviously, was I think Discord calls them servers and that's how they filter different rooms. Um, Matrix is going to call them spaces, but the fact that you the, the the fact that all of this technology once it's built can really be scaled out in any which way you want makes it possible to have subspaces 
And that's uh, you could start by just mimicking what Discord has for room categories. But then you can start getting even deeper and saying, well, what if I wanted to create subgroups of subgroups of subgroups and, and, and really start to build that out? And then tying that back to a permissions or infrastructure or architecture um, from a moderation standpoint is absolutely fantastic, both from a community side and from a work side. The thing that I will not, the, 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 the part that I can't get over with Matrix and the thing that nothing else really seems to even want to answer the question, much less people want to debate the merits or demerits, is how Matrix is the only software out there that you can have your instance running on, on, on your company and we can have our instance running on our company and there's a public instance for everybody to join and use and there's paid instances if you don't want to host it yourself but you just want to get on the bandwagon and you don't want to use the free public instance. Like all of the methods that you would want to see for any particular platform exist, but not many people talk about it. So I, I'm, 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 I'm really interested, you know, and, and, and again, when you can do things like embed a web, a chat inside of just a web page and send people to geeklab.ninja. And now the chat room that we, we used to have to tell you, well, you had to download telegram. We used to have to tell you, well, you had to, to join this way. If you want to join through telegram, join through telegram. You'll get into the same room. If you want to join through the matrix client, join through the matrix client. You can set your own server up. If you want to, if you don't want to do anything, you just want to be plopped into the room, go to geeklab.ninja and that chat room is just presented to you. I just, the powerfulness of this technology is awesome. And I congratulations to the team for, for the continued hard work. YouTube DL has found its way back on to GitHub. So the piece of source code that caused, um, or I guess was the, the launching point for all of this, was a, a piece of source code that referenced a few copywritten songs. The file contains a series of automated tests that verify the functionality of YouTube DL for various streaming types of video. So the first thing, um, I, I guess we should back up a little bit. So the RIAA comes out after YouTube deal and says, you can't host this on GitHub. We want you to take it down. GitHub does try to fight a little bit, but eventually says, Hey, this is, we can't do this. The internet erupts. They're very upset. Now the YouTube deal is being represented by the EFF. And so this attorney who's very tech savvy as well as clearly has understands, you know, his, um, his profession uh, has come to the table and said, here's what the official response is. And it, they, he got them reinstated, at least on GitHub. Now the ball, of course, is in the RAA's court. Um, so the first thing he did was he denied that it was anything. It had anything to do with copyright infringement. Um, and he just flat out says, quote, it is used by journalists and human rights organizations to save eyewitness videos by educators, to save videos for classroom youps. Um, by YouTubers to save backup copies of their own uploaded videos and by worldwide users to watch videos um, on hardware that can't run a standard web browser or to watch videos in their full resolution over slow or unreliable internet connections. And the second part of the complaint referenced what they were calling their signature code. Um, and uh, and we'll get to more of the, about that in a little bit. But the example... Uh, that this attorney draws is he uses it essentially YouTube DL is being used in place of a in place of a web browser and so it sits in place of the web browser and I love that analogy because that's precisely how I use YouTube DL I prefer to watch my content on off of a local file share with the thing that's streaming something um, to my TV 
Um, I'm just, I just don't like all of the other data and control mechanisms that come with the web browser. And so this is where he decides to, to, to draw the line on the sand. He continues, quote, for a subset of videos, YouTube employs a mechanism called its signature. Here's our understanding of how it works. When a user requests a certain YouTube video, the YouTube server sends a small JavaScript program to the user's browser. Embedded in the YouTube player page, the program calculates the number referenced or referred to as SIG. That number then forms part of the uniform resource locator that the user's browser sends back to YouTube to request the actual video stream. This mechanism is completely visible to the user simply by viewing the source code on the player's page. The video stream is not encrypted. No secret knowledge is required to access the video stream. JavaScript is a ubiquitous technology found on millions of websites and understandable by numerous software programs. Any software capable of running JavaScript code can derive the URL from the video stream, access the stream, regardless of whether the software has been approved by YouTube. To borrow an analogy from literature, travelers come upon a door that has writing in a foreign language. When translated, the writing says, say friend, and enter. The travelers say friend, and the door opens. As with the writing on that door, YouTube presents instructions on accessing video streams to everyone who comes asking for it. One does not circumvent in access control by using a publicly available password. Digital drilling data systems versus Petrolink services 2020. This is the case that he references um, to articulate his point that one does not circumvent an access control by using a publicly available password. Circumvention is limited to actions that descramble, decrypt, avoid, bypass, remove, deactivate, or impair a technological measure without the authority of the copyright owner. And then there's this case in Germany. And they reference, the RAA references this case in Germany, which I was confused as to what that had to do with a, a lawsuit in the United States, which uh, Mitchell, or the, uh, the attorney here for the uh, EFFs points out. He says, the 2017 decision of the Hamburg Regional Court in Germany that the RAA references refers to YouTube's signature mechanism was wrongly decided and is not binding nor persuasive under U.S. law. The case in that the court in that case apparently reasoned that since the judge was not familiar with JavaScript, using the signature code was beyond the capabilities of the average user. It was on this basis that the court declared the code to be an effective technical measure against Germany's analog of Section 1201. The court's analysis overlooks the ubiquitous of JavaScript, which is embedded in every web browser and similar software making the use of the signature mechanism well within the capability of the average user. The Hamburg court's analysis sweeps too broadly and it would cause anti-circumvention law to apply to any web content except the simplest plain tech pages because all content can appear obscure to the average user in source code form, but it is easily read and used in a web browser. The Hamburg court's decision is consistent with you is not consistent with us law and the dmca would not be followed by a u.s court and so i think where you arrive at with this is uh you you the the the, the ball is in the raa's court <clears throat> but they don't have a lot of options here because really what they could do is go back to youtube and insist that youtube um set up drm on all of their video streamings 
problem with doing that is, first of all, you're going to fundamentally cut out people like me who aren't going to even bother uploading content, much less consuming content, if everything's going to be wrapped in DRM. It's it's a small thing I'll put up with from places like Netflix because I treat Netflix like a like a like a public entertainment thing. I treat it the same way I treat my public pass when I go into my take my kids to the fair. I pay a fee, I go in, I use their rides, my kids have entertainment, and then we come out and then we're done. I'm not purchasing anything. I understand that I'm renting it and it's a price, it's priced accordingly that I'm willing to rent it. The issue with YouTube is there are independent content creators that are on YouTube that I will support and I will support those independent content creators by donating to them or giving them money. But there's really no content on YouTube that I couldn't get somewhere else or that those creators couldn't get, couldn't distribute somewhere else. That's only available on YouTube. And again, that's just me. I'm you know, your mileage may vary. But I think Google is smart enough not to start to drive away all, all of those people. Because when you start to introduce things like DRM into the browser and start to require it, it's going to cause problems. We had an issue with our church. We were trying to, they were trying to stream a video, and all they wanted to do was stream a, a video straight from the computer out to the projector. They weren't able to do that because of uh, some digital protection stuff that was that that's put in. Um, and so in some cases, it makes sense because it will prevent somebody from illegally using a, a technology or duplicating it. In other cases, in our case, it wasn't about that at all. Like we own the content. We just needed a way to present it on a particular kind of display device. And that was different from apparently what the people that had written the, the DRM intended. Um so and that becomes problematic. The other thing that's concerning here, if Google goes down this route, if they if they if they decided to go down the route where uh, they wanted to implement DRM is to try to prevent people from actually using software to uh, scrape YouTube. Think about the amount of apps and connections and and other services and systems that would break. Um, it's a fraction. Sure, the vast majority of people are going to go to YouTube.com and, and, and interact with it through the web browser. But I think there's a I think there's a portion of people that are going to drop off. And I'm not sure how or what uh, Google's emphasis or care is on that. Um, but if 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 they are fine, excluding a certain just saying, hey, unless you're using a supported browser, then then you just can't watch this content or it's, we're just going to have, it's going to have some protection on it. Then you have to start wondering, does that eventually lead to um, not being able to watch YouTube DRM protected content in certain browsers? So I don't think it's going to go that far. I somewhat suspect um, the RIAA was just seeing how far this would go and if they were going to be able to take this down and what the response is going to be. But I'm really happy uh, that we have, uh, or that the open source community has attorneys that are willing to, first of all, apply logic and reason. The other thing is publish this letter openly, which by the way, we'll have linked uh, on in our show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's uh, Mitchell Stoltz is the attorney. Um, Supporters.eff.org slash donate. Supporters.eff.org slash donate. Supporters.eff.org slash donate. This is an organization that is worth uh, giving some of your money to, if you're, I mean, I know right now is not the time to be asking people to donate money. There's a lot of people that are, are on hard times. So if you're out of a job or something like that, obviously not for you, but they have a one-time donation, monthly donation, annual donation. Um, this allows projects to fight back projects like YouTube to DL to, to fight back and say, no, we're just not going to roll over and, and vanish off the face of the internet. Um, you're going to have to, 
you're you're going to have to continue to make it more difficult um, to pull content off the internet and and allow and and further lock down the internet. And we're going to force people into that corner. I just hope we're ready on the open source side uh, with an open source alternative. I hope that we can get video content up on the library um, or or a competing technology, but something that allows us to to have an answer to the people so that when they say, well, where do I put my content? Where can I go if YouTube isn't going to work for me, if they're going to lock this stuff down? I hope we have an answer to that. Hey, I love hanging out with you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. We record this show every every Tuesday, live at 6 p.m. Central. You can catch all of the back catalog by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Get the latest by following us on Twitter at, at AskNoahShow. You can follow me personally at Colonel Linux. The next action, the next show Fast Noah continues next week, 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Sarah R. Call Screener, JTR Executive Producer, Steve for doing the emails. We're out of here. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. FastNoahShow.com. Fast Noah.